morning, church. Let us turn to our text and read James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, where it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings death. Let us pray. Dear Lord Jesus, as we come to the throne of grace now, Lord, for we all, each of us in this building in some way, know, Lord, that we struggle with this issue. Lord, the natural flesh which fell in the garden and is passed on in iniquity and conception to each and every one of us, God, Lord, this is the thing that must be mortified and sanctified. Lord, we need the presence of your Son. Lord, we need that glorious salvation, Lord, that dripped, Lord, off of the cross in the form of the blood of Christ. Lord, to fall on each and every one who repent and believe, Lord, and are drawn away from their wicked desires to serve lawlessness and instead brought before your throne to worship you forever. This is the end game. This should be the goal. This is the method by which the church will operate until one day we are brought into the true glorious place of worship and we never have to leave again. Lord, help us today. Help us to break free from the cycle of sin in our lives. Lord, and fight the battle against the flesh. The battle your servant Paul spoke of so well when he said, who will deliver me? From this body of death, O wretched man that I am. Well, the Deliverer is here. He is presented in his word, and he is the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. James is writing to caution the people who have been pushed out of Jerusalem. Do not say when you are tempted that God is tempting you, because it's very easy to blame the Most High when trouble comes. It is easy to say, Lord, why? Why have you sent this temptation to me? Why have you troubled me? Why have you sent this affliction to me? But God himself has not done it. God himself has not tempted you, for James clearly says God is neither tempted with evil, nor he himself tempts anyone. What we see is the lack of the presence of God, the infiltration of the enemy of evil, Satan, and the disruption of worship. I think of Adam and Eve. It was not God who presented the fruit to them and said, Oh, you shall not surely die. You shall be like me. This was not God. This was the servant of evil, Satan, who presented to Eve and Adam the desire of their heart to be like God. And they then acted upon, bringing upon themselves and each and every one of us, sin. It is easy to judge Adam and Eve There are many jokes on Facebook pages and internet forums about what people are going to say to Adam and Eve when they get to heaven, shaking their fist or their finger at them. But I say to you, you should not, nor do I think you'll be able to in heaven, because that's a place of all joy and not any animosity. In fact, I submit that had it been you or I, I would have eaten that fruit. You would have eaten that fruit, because it was luring and enticing our desires to be like the Most High. God himself tempts no one and will not tempt you. This is a promise. It is Satan who tempts 
And it is you who run to the temptation and embrace sin. This is the thing that we don't like, and it's not nice to talk about. But Satan can't even force you to sin. Because if he had that kind of power, he would have tried it on Jesus when he tempted Jesus. The only power Satan has over you is the billboard of temptation. And it's when you and I, looking away from the straight highway of holiness, the straight and narrow path, looking off to the billboard Satan has created, and your own desires saying, I want that, I want that, and going off the road down into the swamp. And that's why you're sinking. And that's why you're stuck in the mud. It is not God's fault. In church, we cannot truly blame Satan. Who is to blame? Who did Paul give credit to in Romans 7? Oh, wretched man that I am. That I am. I am the one who is left. I am the one who has gone away. When did God judge the Israelites in the Old Testament? When they turned away from him to false gods. God broke the feet of the fish god Dagon but gave the responsibility to the Israelites. I will smash this false god, says the Lord, but you, you stiff-necked people, you've turned from me again. And instead of bringing about their total and complete destruction, God instead brought mercy in the form of his son. It's so easy to beat ourselves up and say, oh, wretched man that I am. And it's true. But God has not left you there. God will not leave you there. God has provided a way for you and I. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to see now the way of escape that God has provided. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, begins with, Therefore, let Anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. If you think you will not bow to temptation, you are wrong and you will fail. If you think it would never happen to me, I don't need rules or safeguards in my life or ministry. I don't need proper conduct to happen in my dealings with the church because it would never happen to me. I would never make that mistake. Paul Washer, the famous evangelist, was once asked when his son couldn't take a young lady out on a date, I'm paraphrasing a little, without being in a group of chaperones, they asked him, don't you trust your son? And I'm paraphrasing Paul here, but he answered, I don't trust myself. The flesh is evil and wicked, and why? Give it an inch. Take heed lest you fall. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. That is, the things that are against you are common to you. They are here with you and for you by the work of evil. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Now, we often use this verse as a reason why, oh, I'm going to feel good about that. And it's true, you should feel good that God is not going to let you be tempted beyond your ability. But this is also a responsibility, which means in the Holy Spirit, right now, today, you have the ability not to sin. Not to. And I don't want to lose sight of that today. You don't have to sin. The flesh that you still have is pulling you toward it, but you don't have to. You won't be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he also provided a way of escape. You can get out. You don't have to be stuck in the cycle of sin, of temptation and sin and remorse. You can get out that you may be able to endure it. Notice the word endure there. You escape the sin, but you have to endure the temptation because it's always going to be there. 
until God either returns and frees you from this body or frees you in death. The temptation will always be there. We have to learn not just to live with this, but battle with it. This is not an enemy that we should throw up our hands and say, well, it's over. Nobody's perfect. I guess I'll just do my best. This is wrong. This is wrong. For Christ has sent you an escape. He has sent you a way out, and he's done it in the form of his own blood. He is bringing to you now salvation. There is no temptation that you cannot escape because God has provided the way of escape through his son. Christ is the escape. And he's already accomplished it for you and I. The cross proves it. The empty grave confirms it. And now you stand in Christ righteous. And you no longer have to sin. But there's a cycle that I believe that we go through as human beings. And it has three acts. I've tried to distill it as much as I could. I started off with seven or eight, but I'm just down to three. Turn to Genesis chapter three, verse six. If you're taking notes, you can label this the cycle of sin or the sin cycle. While you're turning to Genesis, I'm going to read James 1.14 to remind you, each person is tempted and lured and enticed by his own desire. And then the cycle starts. My desire is for evil. Then the sin cycle starts. I act on my desire. The action is just the fulfillment of sin. As soon as you desire something ungodly and you want it, the sin has started. Because remember, temptation is not desire. Jesus did not sin when Satan presented him with all the kingdoms of the world in temptation. Temptation is not sin. And you should not feel bad for facing it and battling it. For you are like Christ in that moment. And he, perfect with no sin, was tempted. Do not despair because of temptation. Despair with your desires. For when your desires are not for God, they are for evil. And there is no middle ground. Genesis chapter 3 verse 6. Satan has just twisted the words of God, which he always does. And said, did he really say he planted doubt in Adam and Eve's mind? Did God really say... You will not die. He lied. You will be like God. Another lie. And what was the desire of Adam and Eve? To be like God. To take the place of God. To elevate the flesh instead of the true Lord. Verse 6. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, she saw the temptation was a delight to the eyes. It was desired to make one wise. She took of it. And the sin started with her desire. Not when she reached out and actually grabbed the fruit. The sin had already taken root in her heart. And now it was growing. And it's growing toward death. Our desires lead us to sinful actions that God hates. We are lured away by the lust of our flesh. These false desires are from a false God. A false God that says, you'll be happy when you get those riches. You'll be happy when you get that relationship. You'll be happy when you get those resources. You'll be happy when you have enough in the bank. And it's false. There is no way to be happy apart from the presence of God. I often joke with people, happiness is not a good standard. Happiness is a Snickers bar. I can give you each a Snickers bar. I could rain them from the, from the roof right now, and we'd all be happy for a few minutes. But as soon as the little size, and I wouldn't buy a full size, no sir, no ma'am. As soon as that little bar was gone and the little sugar rush went away, you would feel worse. You would feel worse. 
Sin is defined this way in the Greek as hamartia or hamarteo, which means this, I missed the mark. Now this is important to understand. God doesn't define sin in the language as you did bad. He defines it as you came up short. If you were trying to hit a target, and let's imagine a bow and arrow as of the analogies of Scripture. Let's imagine not just a gun, that's what you and I have, but a bow and arrow. You imagine trying to hit the target, you draw back and you shoot and you miss. You would not then go, oh, throw down the bow, get, stop doing this, it's pointless, I give up. You would simply redraw and try again. You miss the mark, and that's what sin is. God is at a standard here, and your flesh comes in about here, and you came up short. I missed the mark. I made a mistake. I sinned. Sometimes I commit a sin against God. The idea of sinning against a fellow or a Lord is present. Sin is missing the standard or the mark that God has provided for you. Like missing a target or missing an exit off the highway, you have come up short of what you were trying to do and what God wanted for you. Sin is moving lower than the mark God has set. And think about it this way. We talk about this in every other area. We lower our education standards. We lower our standards of work. We lower our standards of hours. We lower our standards of reading and writing. But God is saying, you have already lowered your standards. For I am the standard. And if anything else comes above me, before me, around me, it is wrong. You've missed. Get back on track. Hit the target. Worship God. Worship God, not yourselves. Because that's the mark you and I do hit. We can hit every time. When I can make it about me, when I can glorify myself, when I can raise myself up, and I can hit that target every time. Because my flesh has practiced that. I'm good at hitting that target because I do it all the time. The reason I don't hit the target of God is because I don't practice. And we must practice. This word you see in many times. I didn't even put a text for this word. I just wanted you to see the word. Whenever you see sin in scripture, you can think about missing the mark, coming in low, having a substandard practice. And we're good at pointing that out every other area, aren't we? We're good at talking about people who come up short, aren't we? But it is you and I who come up short with God. That's why if you think about Peter, when he's walking on water, he starts to sink. And what does Jesus do? He reaches down to the man who has come up short. The man who is below the mark. The man who is substandard. He reaches down and lifts him up. What did Jesus do in Mark 1 to the leper whose very skin had missed the mark of society? Missed the mark of standards and practices of how to live and be. His very skin was showing the evil of his own heart. And Jesus reaches down to the one who missed the mark. Instead of the leprosy transferring onto Jesus' hand and infecting him, the power of God transferred onto the leper. And he brought him up. Christians, don't live under the standard of God. Don't let anybody tell you that's right. Don't let anybody tell you just to go along to get along and just do your best and all that. Foolishness. You will fail. If they're not telling you about Christ, then they've got it wrong. And I want to be clear today, Jesus has not missed the mark. He hit it, and he hits it now for you. He has not come below the standard of God. He is right. 
be with Christ and your standards will be with God. If you would, I'd like you to turn to Revelation. Revelation chapter 20. And as you're turning there, I'll remind you of the sin cycle that happens in James 1.15. James is pointing this out to us as if to say, watch for this. See this happening in your life. See the areas that sin begins to tempt you and your desires are led away. Because it's not the same for everyone and we should not have the same for everyone. Focus on what you are missing the mark on and start to work. James 1.15, then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin and sin grows into death. So you have desire, sin, and death. This is the sin cycle and it starts with our desires. It doesn't start with temptation. Jesus didn't start with temptation. He was tempted. He did not have the wrong desire. He did not sin. But you and I have the flesh. So we have the wrong desire. Our flesh wants to be God and be better than God, higher than Him. Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. This is where it will lead you. If you follow ungodly desires, if you follow sinful desires, this is where it will take you. Verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, what we know today as hell. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. A fully just God, a fully righteous judge, will cast into the lake of fire death, born of sin, born of desires that are not for his kingdom. If you're sitting in here today, there's two areas and two ways to get out of this sin cycle. The first is this, you may not be a Christian. Your flesh is leading you to death and eventually you will stand before God and God will say, depart from me. Enter the lake of fire and you will be no more. I cast you into eternal conscious punishment for he is an eternal righteous God. And if that sounds unfair to you, church, then I will discuss with you the scripture afterward. But I will give you the truth of what God says. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he and she will be thrown into the fire of hell. That doesn't sound like the nice loving God you heard about in Sunday school. I'm sorry that somebody didn't give you the whole truth. But I give it to you now. This is where the sin cycle leads. And if you sit in here today without the repentance and belief in Christ, this is your destination. And you know what's worse about hell? It's not the fire, because that's easy. That's easy to come in here and preach about hell and get people scared, especially young people, and say things like, you don't want to go there, do you? Are you sure if you died tonight, if that would happen to you? You don't want to go there. That's easy to do. I can do that on myself without God's help. That's why it's foolishness. The real problem with hell is that God is not there. And for the believer, that's what they desire. It's my belief that if you offered the average American Christian a middle ground, some kind of paradise earth that wasn't really heaven with God, worshiping him, but wasn't hell either, I think they would take it. I'm sure the cultural Christians would. I'd like to live on a paradise earth where I could keep doing what I like to do. Because it's not really about loving God, it's about loving me. And this is the air. This is the air. So if you're in a sin cycle today, and you have no desire to break free, if you have no desire to repent, 
and believe in Jesus Christ, then I say woe to you. You should fear now. Your soul should be stirred up. You should be afraid. You should fear. I do want you to get upset because I want you to break free by trusting in Christ, not yourself. Not the works of men. Not the works and traditions of the church because even we will fail you. Trust in Christ and break free out of this unsaved nature and truly live. But there's another way for you to break free today. I wrote a little personal note this morning as I was praying again. It is often the first time in salvation, but it is every day in sanctification that you and I need to be reconciled to God. How can we break free of this sin cycle? Well, temptation's coming to me, and remember, temptation is not bad. It's going to happen to you. It's going to happen to you until you meet Jesus. It happened to Jesus. It's your desires. You desire, you sin, and you die. How can we break free? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Let's start to break free. If you're sitting in here today, not a Christian, then you must break free by repenting and believing in Jesus Christ for the first time. But if you do sit here a believer, and you're still caught in a sin cycle, there's still things in you that are popping up and tempting you, and you fall to them, I would say the number one thing is probably pride. It's the one that we all struggle with. It's the thing God hates in Proverbs. Pride is self-love when we should love Christ. Pride is self-worship when we should worship God. Pride is self-governing when we should be governed by the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Because that's what happened in the garden in Genesis 3. You and I were cut off from God. A great gulf was put between him and I and all of you. And no longer can we approach the throne and worship. God will not allow it. Our sin will not allow it. God cannot have the presence of evil in his presence or his throne room. He will destroy it. That's why on judgment day he cast it into the lake of fire. But instead of leaving you and I there, Instead of leaving us in a cycle of sin that seems like it's never going to stop, he instead sent his son, we implore you on behalf of this messenger of salvation, be reconciled to God. Come back is the message of salvation. Come back to worship. For God has sent his son to retrieve his people. The same covenant God had with the Israelites now is open to even Gentiles in the New Testament. Come back to God. Verse 21, for our sake... God made Jesus, he made him to be sin who knew no sin previously so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Do you understand what's happening here, church? God took his son, his perfect son, and he murdered him and then took the blood and sprinkled it on you and I. That's why Jesus said, I've come for the ones my father has given to me and I will lose none of them. I will lose none of them. Jesus, who knew no sin, who was perfect and worthy of worship for eternity, entered into human flesh and for 33 years faced temptation, faced the same things you face, but instead of falling to them, he had the right desire. In the sin cycle, there was a fleshly desire to worship yourself, but Jesus had the right desire to worship God. Think about him in the garden when he said, Father, if there be any other way, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, 
not my will, but your will be done. Christian, whose will is going to happen today in your heart? Is it yours? As well intended as that might be? Or is it God's, who's clearly spelled out for you in his word what he wants? Jesus had the right desire. And how can we have the right desire? So if the sin cycle is a sinful desire of the flesh, a sinful action of the flesh, and death of the flesh, and death eternal, we must break free in the cycle of righteousness. So if you like to take notes, first point of the cycle of righteousness, break free with godly desires. Turn to Psalm 37, verse 4. Godly desires only come from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They only come after the person has repented and believed in Jesus Christ, been filled with the Holy Spirit, and given a new highway of righteousness to walk. Verse 37, verse, uh, chapter 37, verse 4, Delight yourself in the Lord. Is God enough? Would you come to church if there was no AC? Would you come to church if there weren't comfy chairs? Would you come to church if there were people there you didn't like? Why do you come? Why am I even in this Christian life anyway? Why am I sacrificing my desires for a God that hasn't even physically proven himself? Why? Psalm 37 verse 4, delight yourself in God. Take joy in what God has done and what he's delivered you and given to you and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now the second half of that verse is a promise that is easily twisted. God, I desire to be worshipped and praised and everyone should love me. And you're going to give that to me, right God? No. No. There's a standard in this verse. Delight yourself in the Lord. Be happy with what God has done in you and for you and through you, and then he will give you the desires of your heart. Those desires have been rightly corrected by the Holy Spirit to delight in God and not in yourself. This is what God will give you. Have you noticed what God is doing here? You're an unrighteous, unsaved, spiritually dead being that God comes and preaches to that God lifts up and awakens, that God gives the presence of the Holy Spirit, and then gently leads you to worship God the rest of your life. Church, at what point do you get credit for anything? You and I are idol factories. Everlasting idols that only worship us. But God... An infinite mercy. God, an infinite wisdom, has broken you free of this cycle of idol worship and sin by his son Jesus. You need godly desires. Godly desires. And you know if you have godly desires or not. I often find people don't want to read the Bible because it is full of the desires of God and what is right. And not knowing them is better because then you can continue to act on how you want. This is why the Bible is a struggle even to the Christian sometimes. It's like going to the doctor when you know the doctor is going to mention your weight. Or the dentist is going to say, it's time for that root canal. You don't even want to go. I don't even want to see you. I'll just continue to delude myself that everything's fine. We don't go to God because we know what's going to happen. 
The Lord gives us new desires from our delight in Him. The Christian desires change from selfish sin and worship to selfless worship of Christ. The word worship here, I just put the Greek word, it appears many times. Proskuneo, proskuneo, proskuneete. I go down on my knees. I bow before the king. That's the word worship here. That's why it's not just coming into church and singing, though that is part of worship. I bow before the king. This is the issue. Because the cycle of sin is you bowing to your God yourself and worshiping yourself. And that's what God says is eternal death. To worship God is to bend the knee and fall with your face on the ground before Him and honor Him as Lord. Americans love having a president, but Christians don't have one. This is not a democracy, and you don't have a vote. And I'm so glad I don't, because I would have chosen me every time. Christians in church, in Christianity, you have a monarch. You have a king who has given you a contract in the form of his word. And instead of lording sin over you, himself came and redeemed sin from you. He is a king meant to be worshipped. He is a king meant to bow. And today, the reason you struggle is you have not yet bowed to the one true king. If you would, turn to Titus chapter 3. I know I'm making you go a lot of places today, but it's a good thing. Titus chapter 3. So in this cycle of righteousness, I have godly desires given to me by the Holy Spirit. Then I begin to worship and worship God by bowing the knee to Him, my face on the ground before Him. And what comes after that is now eternal life. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. Verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, verse 5, He saved us, not because of works done by us. Stop right there, church. Read that again. He saved you, not because of what you have done, but because of what He has done. It is now time for Him to get the credit. No longer patting ourselves on the back for all the great Christian stuff we've done. God did it. God's the only one who does it. And you and I get to be ambassadors and proclaimers and worshipers. Not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He, He, poured out richly on us through Jesus Christ our Savior. God has done it, God is doing it, and God will do it. Worship. Stop making it about us. And it's even easy for me to do. It's difficult sometimes to stand in that foyer already and have people come by and say, man, that was such a great sermon. And I appreciate that. I do. I'm going to trip some of y'all up today. You're not going to know what to say out there on the way out. Say this. Say Today was good because now I'm thinking about my God. You talked about God. 
You made it about Christ. You made it about the Spirit. Not only is that the mark of a good preacher, it's the mark of a good Christian. But don't fear. It's okay to say to me today, that was a good sermon. You know why? Because I can declare to you, I had no sermon to give that was good this week until the Word was revealed to me by the Holy Spirit. I stared at this text of James for several days, pondering what to do. Until God richly blessed me in study and said, I want you to say this. And I believe I have. Verse 6. Of whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Verse 7. So that being justified by his grace. Justified. Made righteous in the sight of God. No longer your sinful desires dragging you down before God and condemning you to hell. Justified by his grace that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Christian, you share now in a tradition, a rich tradition going back thousands of years of worshipers. Whom God has said through the spirit of adoption, not only am I going to forgive you of your sin, I'm going to bring you into my house. And I'm going to love you like you're my own little son or daughter. I'm going to put you at my table. I'm going to give you the best food and the best drink. And I'm going to put you in a room with great clean linen so that you will sleep in peace. God has brought you into his house and said, oh no, no longer are you a street rat. No longer are you going to run wild and do what you want. No, I have washed you, I have made you clean, and now you will live with me. For I am a good father. What's the one analogy God does over and over again? Parent and child, father and son. He loves you. He adopted you. And because of Christ, our brother, he has now washed you and made you clean. And you sit at a table of a feast of love in the righteousness of God. Christian, stop going to the spiritual McDonald's. Stop going out for fast food when God has made the most delicious steak you could ever imagine. And he's serving it at home. Why would we ever be out? Come home. Come home and dine with the Lord your God. Christ saved according to his own mercy, not by human works. Human works are as filthy rags. The idea there is a woman on her menstrual cycle or a leper with the diseased rags covering him. Not your own works, for your works are evil. But the work of God is good. And you are now an heir with a hope of eternal life. I was talking to another friend this week as the invading army of Russia was moving in on Ukraine, and I just said, man, I can't imagine what people do nowadays without a hope of God. They really must just trust in the present life. They really must just hope that this life will be happy and good enough to make it all worth it so when they eventually die, it was good enough time. Isn't that kind of the world standard? Isn't that why a child dying is so horrific because we say, oh, they didn't have a life to live? That's not what God says. God says your time with me it will be far longer than your time on earth. Church, I've tried to describe to you today these two cycles of sin born of evil desire and growing into death and death eternal. And then the righteous cycle of godly desires given to you after salvation that lead to worship instead of sin that leads to eternal life instead of eternal death. 
But I'd like to take you now to one final text. In Revelation chapter 22, we start with verse 1. And I'll give you a minute to turn there. I was captivated by this text. I added it rather late in my study process. I realized that this is the last glimpse in the book of Revelation. For after verse 5, Jesus begins to say, I'm coming quickly. John testifies of these things. And then the chapter ends with amen. This is the last glimpse we get of God and us in heaven. This is what you and I are going to do for all eternity. So when we read this now, this should make you excited. As I started to get excited as I read it. Look at verse 1, chapter 22. It begins, then the angel, everyone there? Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of that river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will have no need of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Christian, break free of that cycle of sin and enjoy that cycle of righteousness because this is the destination. This is the end for you and I. And before I pray, I want to point out one final thing. Earlier I mentioned that worship was bowing before the king. Remember? Laying your face down on the ground. All throughout the scripture, every time God appears, what happens? From Moses to Paul, face on the ground. The light of God was too bright. But that's not what they do in this chapter. What does it say? Verse 4, they being us, the church, the redeemed worship ones brought to heaven, they will see his face. God has brought you in, little child. And when you fall before his throne, he reaches down, lifts you up by the chin, and says, look at me. And look at me forever as we enjoy eternity as father and child. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for that picture of your word. And I ask now, Lord, if there be one here who needs to break free of that cycle of sin, Lord, they must turn to Jesus. Lord, for the first time, if they are lost, they must repent and believe in Jesus Christ for their salvation that is the gospel, one that is being threatened by our brothers and sisters overseas, and one that we must not become complacent in. But Lord, I turn now to Christians and the church if they are also caught in this cycle of sin, Lord, they can break free through the sanctification of Christ that he renews every day. Lord, you will not leave your people in darkness. You promised us at the end of the book of Revelation that we will have no need of light, for we will see your face. And what Moses couldn't look at, what Paul couldn't look at, one day we all will look at. The bright, shining, eternal glory of the very face of God. Lord, this is all provided by the Son, and we are led by the Spirit.
And so now we worship, one day knowing we will see the face of God. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen.